Revelation 3.10 is an unrecoverable wound for the pre-trip position, in our opinion. A review of our last program will confirm that our words are not mere hyperbole. A second significant admission by pre-tribbers concern Revelation 4.1. John writes, After these things I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here so that I can show you what must happen after these things. Concerning this verse, in an article entitled The Apocalypse of John and the Rapture of the Church, a Reevaluation, Michael J. Svigil, who is a doctoral student at Dallas Theological Seminary, writes, quote, It has been argued by pre-tribulationists innumerable that the experience described by John in Revelation 4, 1 and 2 is a symbol of the rapture of the church, close quote. Now, if you were listening closely, you heard the, those, these words, pre-tribulationists innumerable. This man says that a whole host of pre-tribulationists argue that Revelation 4, 1 to 2 is a symbol of the rapture of the church, close quote. He lists among those who would take such a position, Alan B. Check, H.A. Ironside, William R. Newell, C.I. Schofield, just to name a few. He also lists as one who takes this position, Dr. Joseph A. Seiss, who wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation. Seiss, in his commentary, says, quote, That door opened in heaven is the door of the ascension of the saints. That trumpet voice is the same which Paul describes as calling the sleepers in Jesus, and to which the Savior refers as the signal by which his elect are gathered from the four winds, but which we have no reason to suppose shall be heard or understood except by those whom it is meant to summon to the skies. And that come up hither is for everyone in John's estate, even the gracious and mighty word of the returning Lord Jesus by virtue of which they that wait for him shall renew their strength and mount up with wings as eagles. This is very insightful. Seiss says or considers this to be a rapture passage. This view is clearly dependent on a symbolical interpretation of this passage. The mention of the trumpet, the voice, heaven, and the spirit form the basis of this line of thinking. Dr. John F. Walvert, the uh, president, a past president of Dallas Theological Seminary, in his commentary, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, on page 103, writes, quote, Though there is no authority for connecting the rapture with this expression, come up hither, there does seem to be a typical representation of the order of events, namely, 
the church age first, then the rapture, then the church in heaven, close quote. In other words, he knows that there is no authority for connecting the rapture with the expression, but yet he argues that the rapture is in fact to occur at that specific place in the Revelation. In an article entitled The Rapture and the Book of Revelation, Keith H. Essex offers the following evaluation of the position that Revelation 4.1 is a rapture passage. Essex writes, quote, The evidence points to this being a statement of John's personal experience in the first century and not the church's future experience. He continues, quote, The expression after these things marks the beginning of a new vision for John. This is an opinion he recognizes is shared by Robert L. Thomas in his commentary on Revelation. Essex continues, quote, According to Revelation 1.10, the first voice like a trumpet that John heard was the voice of Jesus himself. Therefore, the voice referred to here is that of Jesus, not that of the archangel at the rapture. John is summoned by Jesus to heaven to receive revelation of future events. This occurs in the spirit. John is transported spiritually to heaven while his body remains on Padmas, close quote. Essex then quotes Dr. Merrill Tenney, cogent observation, quote, There is no convincing reason why the seers, being in the spirit and being called to heaven, typifies the rapture of the church any more than his being taken into the wilderness to view Babylon indicates that the church is there in exile, close quote. In reality, there is absolutely nothing in Revelation 4.1 that remotely signals the rapture of the church, a fact that many scholarly pre-tribbers are now forced to admit as evidenced by Essex's comments uh, in his article about the rapture in the Revelation. Thus, we must ask, from whom or from where did this opinion about Revelation 4.1 come? It is, in fact, an implication founded upon pre-tribber's forced understanding of the sequence of events in the Revelation. Typically, some pre-tribbers argue that the phrase, these things, refer to the present church age, while everything from chapter 4 onward represents events that take place after the present church age. Therefore, they argue the rapture must occur after chapter 3, but before chapter 4 in the sequence of the revelation. John's call to heaven was the only thing that remotely symbolized a supposed rapture. So they adopted the position we articulated above. This is clearly an assumption based on a false presupposition. The false presupposition is this, that John indicates dispensational shifts 
by the phrase, after these things. Revelation 1.19 is typically depicted by pre-tribbers as the key to the temporal chronology of the book of Revelation. Dr. Robert L. Thomas, who has written, in our estimation, the best conservative exegetical commentary on the book of Revelation, regarding Revelation 1.19, after arguing against the other position, writes, quote, The last possibility is to look at the words of 1.19 as speaking of the apocalypse in three separate divisions. In this case, three parallel designations are recognized in the verse. The things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which are to about to happen after these things. Certainly, it must be granted that this is the most natural way of understanding the Greek terminology. When the relative pronoun occurs three times in an identical form, with the three forms connected by Chi in a perfectly symmetrical arrangement, close quote. In other words, Dr. Thomas believed that Revelation 1.19 easily outlines the divisional chronology of the book of Revelation. That is, things I saw, chapter 1, things I see, chapter 2 and 3, things about to be after these, chapter 4 through 22. That Dr. Thomas's conclusions are self-serving is clearly evident. To attempt to separate chapter 1 from 2 and 3 is clearly more implication than fact. Equally, to make chapters 2 and 3 cover the whole church age is playing fast and loose with the text. Clearly, chapters 2 and 3 speak of judgment and blessings for seven churches either during John's day or at the eschatological judgment by Christ. However, there is absolutely nothing in Revelation 2 and 3 that speaks to the specific situation of any known modern church. As with all scripture, one can always principalize or apply the illustration found in the text. It is certainly possible that the promises given to the seven churches all New Testament believers can claim. Yet this is no different than any other passage of Scripture, both in the Old or New Testaments. Thomas and others can be convicted of the same problem as preterists and those who spiritualized the book of Revelation. They attempt to answer the questions of the critics by sacrificing the text. Dr. G.K. Beale is an excellent example of this problem. He found significant insights into how the Spirit utilized the book of Revelation in the book of, utilized the book of Daniel in the book of Revelation. But unfortunately, he allowed his presuppositions to lead him down the wrong path in understanding the intent of John's writing. He satcheled the book with an historical fulfillment mostly limited to the first century. 
in a complete and utter waste of paper and giftedness, Dr. Beale labors to prove that which the text never intended. He and others are unable to accept the proposition that the majority of the book of Revelation was futuristic at the time John wrote it. In their thinking, by adopting the view that most of the book of Revelation is pure prophetic forecasting, the first century readers would have found no application for themselves. Yet this is the case with much of the book of Daniel. Biblical prophecy is prophecy. It may or may not have immediate relevance for the audience who first received it. This is the nature of prophecy, a fact which the book of Revelation repeatedly affirms. The book is a prophecy. Now please understand, the first century audience took the same view that all generations since have taken. The fulfillment of the prophecies of John's revelation may or may not find fulfillment during my lifetime. I am encouraged by it. I am encouraged that Jesus will win. I am encouraged in knowing how he will win. But as far as a direct fulfillment in connection with my own life, it may or may not happen during my lifetime. But I don't have to change the interpretation of the book to force it to apply to my time, and the first century believers did not need to do it either. This is really a false premise that ultimately leads to disaster and not a clear understanding of the interpretation of the book of Revelation. It is true that the book of Revelation clarifies the prophecies of Daniel chapter 2, 7, 9, and 12. There are clear grammatical parallels between Revelation 1, 19 and Daniel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and verse 45. Daniel writes, however, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the times to come. The dream and the visions you had while laying on your bed are as follows. As for you, O king, while you were in your bed with your thoughts turned to future things, the revealer of mysteries has made known to you what will take place. Verse 45 says, You saw that a stone was cut out from a mountain, but not by human hands. It smashed the iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold into pieces. The great God has made known to the king what will occur in the future. What Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar as events of the latter days in times to come is how the Net Bible translates that critical phrase. The Greek of Daniel chapter 2 is remarkably similar to the Greek used in Revelation 1.19. So much so that Beale and others have concluded that John is in fact uh, echoing and writing in a similar vein to that which occurs in Daniel chapter 2. However, there are differences. 
And those differences reflect John's exposure to the stone cut from a mountain whom we now know to be Jesus Christ. John reports the beginning fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's fulfillment. That fulfillment is limited to the stone. Unlike Daniel 2, Revelation 1 reveals the identity and program of the stone that will smash the beast empires. Unlike the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation reveals the power behind the beast empires and highlights God's program to smash both the power behind the empires and the empires themselves. When the kingdom of the stone comes to earth. The book of Revelation explains how the stone comes to earth and the source of his power to smash the empires of the beast. The key phrase, what is about to take place after these things, which begins Revelation 4.1, again draws upon content from Daniel chapter 2, verse 28 through 29 and verse 45. In contradistinction to Nebuchadnezzar, who was only in a limited sense allowed to see the future events connected with the ultimate destruction of the beast empires, John is given a full viewing of the events that smash the beast empires. What is about to take place after these things signal that the work of the stone continues. Revelation 4.1 is extremely important because it signals that what Nebuchadnezzar saw in miniature is finally revealed in full. Unfortunately, Beal allows his presuppositions to control his understanding of this text. Just as Daniel 2 involved more future than present reality during Daniel's time, so is the case of Revelation 4.1 and John's time. The fact that Revelation 4 through 5 concerns the discovery of the whereabouts of the Lamb, who is the stone, is proof positive that events connected with John's day are secondary to the events depicted in Revelation 4 through 19. They are future to the time of John. John must have clearly known that the great one of Revelation chapter 1 was Jesus Christ. Seeing him in chapter 1 clearly established not only who he was, but also what his role is among the churches. John surely knew that Jesus Christ was at the right hand of the Father, as he was told in Acts chapter 1. Yet as Revelation 4 opened, Jesus invites John up to heaven, but he is nowhere to be seen in Revelation 4. And Revelation 5 reveals that the Lamb standing near the throne of God to take the scroll from the Father is in fact Jesus Christ. This is clearly the initiation of the Son of Man in the presence of of the Ancient of Days, from whom he receives the kingdom. These facts clearly depicted in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 4.1 does not indicate how soon after the previous events, the future events will occur. Therefore, there is no need 
to push Revelation 4.19 back into the historical climate of John's day, but we should leave it to find its fulfillment as God intended. Unlike pre-tribbles who attempt to make Revelation 4.1 a demarcation line between the church age and a resumptive Jewish age, and unlike Beale, who attempts to make Revelation 4.1 spatially indistinct, that is, it indicates past, present, and future events at the same time, with no clear markers of which is which. We understand Revelation 4.1 as a textual marker that signals the eschatological fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the stone that smashes the beast empires. One can clearly see that in the book of Daniel, far more emphasis is put on the empires and what they will do than is put on the stone that is cut out of the mountain. One can almost ask, what about the stone? As one reads the book of Daniel, He knows that God is going to intervene and that God's kingdom will ultimately win, but he does not know how. He knows, in fact, he knows very few facts about the stone that is cut out of the mountain that smashes the mighty image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision. This is the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is to reveal to us how the stone smashes the beast empires. The whole notion that Revelation 4.1 signals a return to the Jewish age for the fulfillment of the last seven years of Daniel's prophecy is an unnecessary presupposition based on the false notion that the church age must end before God can resume his work with Israel. The last 50 years of Israel's history ought to have been enough to set this notion aside. Does anyone doubt that God is involved in the events of the past 50 years in the land in the land man calls Palestine? For those who believe that God cannot work with ethnic Israel and the church at the same time, he need only seriously consider the scriptures. Matthew chapter 24 verse 2 record a prophecy of the Lord Jesus about the destruction of the then standing temple in Jerusalem. He says not one stone will be left upon another. It seems to escape the attention of pre-tribbers that this prophecy found its fulfillment in AD 70, which is a full 35 years after the beginning of the church age as detailed in Acts chapter 2. God has worked with both ethnic Israel and the church in the past. He is working with both this very day, and he will work with both during the consummation of this present age. If you're keeping score, you know pre-tribulationalism is now O for 2. One more strike and you're out. The next time we will look at Revelation chapter 4 through 19, and in our opinion, serve up the final strike against pre-tribulationism. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, does not in any shape, 
form, or fashion indicate, implicate, or intend a rapture of the church, a fact which pre-tribulationalists have finally admitted, yet few have offered an apology or a correction in their writings to those who are, in fact, believing and following this position. They were wrong about Revelation 3.10. They were wrong about Revelation 4.1. I do not understand how those who support, those who follow, those who, in fact, uh, strongly adhere to pre-tribulationalism can do so without having serious, serious doubts about their position. Yet I know that there are many, many people who believe in pre-tribulationalism who think that the position is founded solidly upon explicit scripture. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, this is not true. It simply is not true. Pre-tribulationalism is continually suffering the loss of passage after passage as a support for its position. And as a result of losing Revelation 3.10, the position has no explicit basis in the word of God whatsoever. I just don't understand how those who follow this position can do so without serious doubts. And those doubts should lead to a new and full investigation of exactly what God's word has to say about the return of the Lord Jesus. He is going to return, but that return will not look like anything the pre-tribulationalists have argued in their writings. Revelation 4.1 must be moved from the category of support for a pre-trib rapture to the category of having absolutely nothing to do with a pre-trib rapture. Thank you.